Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Luke Kemp. Isn't he a doctor? I think he's called Dr. Luke Kemp. Dr. Doom? Well, he calls himself oh, Dr. Doom. Oh, I only had Dr. Called... Doom. <laughs> yeah, but is he a doctor? I feel like he was a doctor. No, because he's a research associate. That Can't one. he be a doctor for I that? Don't... Oh, I guess he has a PhD, so yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh. Luke is a... Right, so check this out, Luke. So do you know, he's a research associate at the Centre for Study of Existential Risk at Cambridge. He holds a PhD in international relations from the Australian National University, and he was previously a senior economist at Vivid Economics. But what he also is, is a bit of a beefcake Henry Carville hunk. And we talk about emergency measures, we talk about anarchism, we talk about power. It's a very interesting lovely conversation with a very you liked it did you Django yeah it made me want to read what did it make oh yeah that James C. Scott yeah, book got to read that and on his Cambridge page there's loads of books he recommends I've gotten loads well let's put a link to it yeah and let's that. get those books go on then are yeah, you going to well, do it yeah I'll do Pff, I bet you don't I want you want to read something I bet you'll just cut this bit out of the thing so as you try to save yourself a bit <laughs> of time no, so I... you can stand polishing pebbles on the beach <laughs> no no you best not Jen <laughs> What have you been doing all week anyway? My mum was come? over. Oh, yeah, I knew she was coming. Did she yeah. have a nice time or yeah, did you ruin it did. for her? No, no, I think she liked it, yep. Where'd she sleep? In the downstairs quarters. She had a whole room. Was she happy in there? In the ensuite, yeah. Any noises? No noises. Did you make sure that the bathroom had stuff in it, like yeah, toilet roll I even and like, towels? I had like white towels laid out on her bed and I bought a little soap and a face cloth and some. And a I, face laid, cloth. I laid it out like I had an Airbnb. Did you? Yeah. I don't think you could run an Airbnb, Jen. <laughs> no, because there'd be people. <laughs> Imagine how you'd get I, on with them. At times I had to just go upstairs to be alone. Why? Because she were talking to you. I'm not used to having to deal with someone all the time. What was it, What did she do that made it hard? Well, just being in the presence of us. And the Hawkins. I spent a lot of time with the Hawkins and my mum. They, became they very all came good, together. They all became very good friends. Did you FaceTime Justin no, with all of them? No, I showed him a picture and he said it freaked him out. Yeah, it freaked me out just hearing about <laughs> it, the whole disgusting business. Any dates? No, I've decided to give up. Oh, good. Well, that's <laughs> nice. I just think, like, I only really like being obsessed with someone, and if it's not that, I don't really like it. You like an obsession? Yeah. And do you? does it matter if you're with the person or not? I prefer to be with the person I'm obsessed with. Mm. Otherwise, it's an unrequited love, and that's quite harsh. Oh, unrequited love. I don't care for that, do you? I don't like it, but sometimes it happens when they don't want to go out with you. <sighs> How and then awful. I wait another five years until someone new comes along. Have some unrequited love off them yeah. and all, or not. So that was a good week. It's a lovely week. <laughs> comments on Dr. Anne Lemke. Lemke. Now time for comments. She was lovely, wasn't she? She shot off. <laughs> That's your off main memory of the whole podcast. <laughs> she shot off like a dopamine <laughs> that was just after the a end. good smack hit. Eight hours after, maybe. Janice Lewis says. It's hard when society is set up with rewards that are addictive. The whole system seems to be focused on external pleasure. You're right about that, Janice. It does, doesn't it? Stimulating us into a stupor. Leo Zen. That was interesting. <laughs> and it's great food for thought. It's strange that we're not allowed to be in a constant high. Yeah, I'd love to be in a constant high. Why am I I'm so fond of my childhood, and specifically Christmas times when my cousin would visit and for a month, I'd be so happy and buzzed and we'd be depressed for a few weeks after holiday. Yeah, I remember things like that. Did your cousin come over, Jen? Or did they refuse no. uh, until you no. were correctly contained no. in a psychiatric unit <laughs> for the holiday season? No. That's... They came? They uh, didn't come? No. What did you do at Christmas over there? I hate there? Christmas. Oh, my God. Why? I just hate it. Because of little Lord Jesus? <laughs> no. You know, like little Lord Jesus? No, he's fine. He's great, isn't he? Come yeah. down, he'll pass. Yeah, we put him out on Christmas Eve. You put at, him out In the where? crib. 
in the crib. Yeah. Until then, what is the whole just stable? No, but I'm going to get one of those. You need to get a crib. You put your crib out, but there's no Jesus for the first three weeks. You're just looking at an empty crib. Oh, hell. Yeah. Although in reality, I'll get it, Jen. I'll get the system. (laughs) Jenny, though, actually, they wouldn't have been there yet, would they? Mary and Joseph. So how should be? I used to add ones, like the sheep. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it should be. You should get the stable. That's there. That was built ages ago. The sheep, they can come and go as they please, actually. Their marathons one. They're there one day and not the next. (laughs) Then Mary and Joseph, they got to arrive, what, on the 23rd? Mm, I don't know how long she was Well, they weren't there long. Oh, how long was the labour? We've got to get some information. I mean, <laughs> if you... Have been, There's no information. No information anyway. on that. Why didn't they cover that in the old good book? That's what I'd like to know. Why not cover the struggle of the mother? Sexism. Sexism, pure and simple. What are you doing, Fefele? Where you been anyway? On a really great call. Wow, she's been on a great call. You look really happy. Right? You best listen to this podcast, do you? Yeah, all the time. Liar. Make sure that you do and make sure you look <laughs> after. So we've given a kitten to Alicia and my hopes are not high. Alicia works here. She manages this organisation and we've given her a kitten and my uh, I'm very worried for its life. Well, she didn't fall asleep on it, which is good. That's good. That's a good sign. It's a good start, I suppose. All right. Um <laughs> So hold on. So we get the stable. Yeah. We put some sheep. About yeah. the twenty third, we put our lady and Joseph. Who, let's face it, he's not considered particularly important. No, he's, he says he was just a sperm. He was he the sperm? I don't think so. He was. It's our oh yeah, it's God. <laughs> Unless a sperm. you're a Protestant, right? And Protestants to believe she had sex. Look, mate. Chris, Catholics like me don't, because we're scared of it. I think. I don't think the Catholics prefer the sex no, to the Protestants. It's more guilt. Oh, yeah, because oh. we believe in the immaculate conception, and nice the and Protestants immaculate. don't. They change the rules. The Protestants, in a way, <laughs> I won't worry too much about how he got there. <laughs> I think more, how it's good that there. he came at all. <laughs> That's my verdict. You're just happy he's here. I'm just happy, <laughs> little Lord Jesus, and the sort of the limitless compassion and love, and the potential for redemption, have all arrived, not in a palace, but in a stable. So in the rough times in your life, when you feel like you're down among the animals, your face pressed into the straw, despairing and hopeless, when you can't get let in no place, that's when God, the gift of God, may come to you, the gift of God, or the bare necessities, (laughs) (laughs) either. But I prefer God. Although the bare necessities, they're also, are they good? As in like the song from the Jungle Book? Well, what else is there, Jen? (laughs) What other bare necessities? Food, uh, shelter. Right. I'll take them as well. (laughs) All right. So um, I think we've covered the birth of Christ. (laughs) Listener, shout outs. Do you want it? Did we banter decant? Yeah, with your mother. Oh, Oh, yeah, we did. Sorry, you said banter decanter with your mother. I banter decanted you. Banter decanter. You just put it on now. This is listener shout outs. (laughs) Listener shout outs. Oh, no. Look at them just crashing against each other. Absolute madness. Absolute madness. We've got some fantastic podcasts coming up for you in the future. Did you know that? Who have we got? What well, We've got a load Gabor of... Mate. Yeah, yo. Sebastian Younger. JP. We've got sort of all sorts coming down the pipeline to the... I want to get Vandana Shiva back. Yeah, she'd be good. I love her. Okay. So listen to this, though. 
listen, there, the listener shout-out that Jenny just clumsily <laughs> did an intro for. Jamie Walsh, I just wanted to say, I'm loving your podcast. Keep on the brilliant work. Your approach, views, and opinion on what's going on in this crazy little world are so refreshing and great to hear. I love the compassion and kindness that runs through what you bunch are doing. Peace and love, your podcast ninjas. All right, including you there, Jen. Hey, have we won that award, do you think, or not? Yeah, read the next comment. I voted for you, Russell. Thank you, says Claire Sullivan. Love your podcast. I really trust you received 98% of the vote. Yeah, I think so. Oh, this is a landslide. Let's yeah. stand for government. Let's get together. No. Hold on. All we need, <laughs> how many seats are there? 420 across England and New Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland. I need someone to stand in every constituency. We're going to stand under the principle of something like, somewhere between anarcho-syndicalism and communitarianism, Right. We've get we get some understand and say, look, if we win, we're gonna this this MP is not gonna have any personal power. You, the people of your community, are gonna run your community. We're gonna decentralize wherever possible. We're gonna shackle and control big business like you ain't never seen before, baby. Tax loopholes are gonna be snapping shut like a scaredy cat's butt. <laughs> Do you think people might be like, oh? That sounds like a lot of work. It's not work for. Well, what else are you gonna do? You're working anyway. You're trapped in a dead end job. Not oh. you, Jen. You're having a great time. <laughs> <laughs> it's not dead end, Jen. I'm trapped in a dead end. Job. You've got a bright future. I was talking to. Future. I was talking to people in dead end jobs. Then oh. you're part of the revolution, Jen. Thank you. Well done. <laughs> now, okay. So listen, and Luke Kemp, we're going to do some more work with that <laughs> handsome desk, square jawed devil. <laughs> Did you call him a desk? I didn't call him a desk. I love him, <laughs> and I think that he's great. And yeah, I know. He was great on it. What is, is he? It, a new hero. What did we like about him? Yeah, he's a bit of a hero. Yeah. You, know, you think one of my my crushes, yeah. my male crushes. Yeah, you've got a type. It's just <laughs> a little crush. Is it just a little crush? I think so. Yeah. And have I got a type? Yeah, Let's you, you like them. kind of uh, stocky. Yep. No, hero's not stocky. Grinded. Yeah, but he's. I'm reviewing my crush he's not, list. He's not, he's not way thin. He's certainly not way thin. He's very well built. Now, there's Huron. He's on the list. Uh, the uh, gay, long hair guy. Luke, what gay hair? Oh, he's maybe not gay. He wasn't gay. Oh, he was married. Whenever, whenever you do an impression of him, he's way. Well, he was camp. camp. That's what sort of threw me. It was amazing. Then he did the jujitsu. It was so badass. Right, who else? So you on? don't really mind effeminate or... Well, if they're going to do that effeminate thing, I do like that it's matched with good jujitsu skills, although that's yeah. not a judgment on people who are either a feet or a macho. You be whoever the hell you are. I'm just talking about my personal little preferences when developing my little crushes. <laughs> and now Luke. In Luke, there's someone else, isn't there? There's loads, aren't there? I mean, let's face it. I feel like there's someone else. It's absolute ongoing mental, absolute obsession. Yeah, you are. like dominant males. Hey, they're not dominating <laughs> me. <laughs> hmm? They're not dominating me. <laughs> not in an intellectual way. No way. Like, I mean, let's list them. They, would, they might... In a, well, actually, though, Purple Belt, although here on, he's smashed me to bits. Luke. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> ben. Smashed me to bits. <laughs> oh, Luke's on there twice. Is this your grinder bio? <laughs> <laughs> well done, Jen. It's about time you did a joke in these Smash intros. Smashed me to bits. They're, for that, that small, slim percentage of people that have stayed to listen to this waffle, instead of going straight forward to a handsome anarchist telling you the score, there's a joke finally worth finally. listening to. It's only taken five years. Even though the reference is about a ten-year-old reference, it's still good, Jen. It's still good. Oh, all the comedy you've studied over the years, well done. We're going to give you that round, Jenny May Finn. Like, uh, that's like Deontay Wilder's I'll put, I'll one or two rounds. Don't you dare. No, I'm going to make a jingle out of it. Right, if you He's... make a jingle out of that, you're going to be in a little trouble. I'll have a tribunal <laughs> with you. 
The work tribunal. Do we have those? Well, I'm still waiting for my we review. A, yeah, we, well, it's difficult to think of anything to review. <laughs> like now, like what about um, Angie winning yeah. uh, team player of the month? Great yeah. trophy. Is no, it, I voted for Angie. Yeah. Is it corrupt to have this award system? Is it, it made me feel propaganda? weird. Oh, I liked it. I felt strange. What, what do you mean? I just feel sad for anyone who gets left out. Don't matter if what if it goes through all the all the months? Well, if Angie always wins, it becomes just like <laughs> yeah. this That'd be good, dreadful hegemony. Yeah, but she's okay at the top. Yeah, she's pretty kind. All right. Now, listen, that's that, isn't it? Have I got anything else to tell you? I'm performing in Reading. Come and see me there. You can get tickets. Go to russellbrand.com. Listen to Above the Noise and learn to meditate, you absolute lunatic. Uh, join my mailing list at russellbrand.com. Watch my YouTube channel. It's good. Sign up to my side channel, Awakening. And uh, is that everything? Yeah, no, it's loop. Uh, yep. Let's <laughs> listen and they get smashed by Luke. Smashed a bit. Oh, baby. <laughs> Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? Welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Luke Kemp, thank you so much for um, joining me for Under the Skin. Thank you. My pleasure, Russell. Now, mate, we um, the the thing that got us um, into you was that article that you wrote where you wrote about um, various emergency powers being granted around the world. Now, before we get into that, you're very young, aren't you? Uh, only 32 recently. You're just 32. You're incredibly handsome. I mean, I don't know if it's even allowed, if I'm allowed to even say that anymore. But I, I'm saying it in a respectful way across Zoom. <laughs> Sorry, you have my, my full enthusiastic consent to give me compliments. <laughs> Thank you very much. Then that will be the first of many. Um, so <laughs> that, that article, Luke, mate, what, um, can you tell me... What motivated you to write it and what are your broad conclusions from looking at regulations and legislations that are being introduced sort of globally, albeit with distinct um, national you know, consensus? What, what do you observe in this trend and what concerns do you have? So the motivation was actually one of self-responsibility. So I work at what's called the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk at the University of Cambridge. And the centre is supposed to be dedicated to the study and the mitigation of any large-scale risks that could cause either global catastrophe or, at worst, human extinction. And while that's a very noble goal, there are risks that come with that. And the biggest risk to me is securitization. that when you talk about these very large risks, you potentially give very powerful actors a, a veil and a justification, an excuse, if you will, to take exceptional actions and ones that can actually worsen rather than alleviate the risk we're looking at. And that led me to really think about emergency powers, what the governments do during crises in order to address the crisis and how can they actually backfire. The article I wrote recently was titled The Stomp Reflex. And essentially I put forward the case that emergency powers, which are these powers governments use, which are essentially exceptional actions during a crisis that deviate away from existing laws and even the existing constitution, that they frequently both A, become sticky, they become permanent when they're supposed to be temporary, 
And B, in many different cases, they can lead to what I call despotic drift, that they like they not only become permanent, but they actually tend to erode the constitution they're supposed to protect. And this is something you can see dating all the way back to the use of the dictator in the Roman Republic. So the Roman Republic had this dictator who could be appointed on a six-month term. They had the ability to draft citizens, do a number of different exceptional actions, but they also had limits. They had to draw upon the finances of the Senate. They had to stick to a six-month term. They couldn't change the underlying laws of the constitution, and they couldn't start offensive wars. Yet over time, you eventually saw that emergency power abused. It was surprisingly robust for a long period of time. It was used 95, over 95 times in the space of three centuries. But eventually, I think it was in 83 BC, you had Sulla come in and eventually both break the term. He stayed in for a year. And he also tried to rewrite the constitution as well. And he was followed by the last dictator, Julius Caesar. And that marked the descent from the Roman Republic into the Roman Empire. And of course, there were many other factors, but the overuse of emergency powers was one of them. And we see exactly the same thing when it came to the transition from the Weimar Republic into Nazi Germany. We also see the use of emergency powers when it comes to the Medici's gaining an oligarchy in Italy, or in Florence, I should say, in particular, and even Napoleon establishing an empire. Each of them made use of some form of emergency powers to cement their rule and to gain exceptional actions over the citizens. And the really interesting thing to me is not just the ability for this despotic this drift to occur, but the fact that emergency powers are predicated upon a false premise. And that's this notion that you can't trust the citizens when it comes to a crisis, that citizens, citizens will panic and they need to be controlled, and that the best people to trust during a crisis are those atop a hierarchy. Yeah. Emergency powers only ever go one way, top down. And that's a gross violation of all the evidence we see. When we look at disaster risk management, we have abundant evidence that citizens tend to act with an amazing amount of both pro-social behavior, mutual aid, and spontaneous cooperation. In contrast, sorry, go on. You've just already said so much. You've already said, <laughs> you've already said so much. How often periods of tyranny are preceded by the granting of emergency powers. You cited the Weimar Republic led to the Nazis, um, Julius Caesar, Napoleon. Some of our greatest dictators, like, is it possible that Joe Biden or uh, Boris Johnson could be joining that list of dictators? I mean, do you, uh, you don't strike me as someone who would be needlessly hysterical or incendiary or would lean into hyperbole. You seem like a, already, based on what I've read of yours and meeting you, like a rational, calm and, and academically inclined gentlemen. So are these genuine fears of yours? You said your motivation was sort of like a personal one. So like, do is this something, do you feel a kind of personal encroachment that you can legitimately liken to the, the examples of tyranny you've cited? I like to think of myself as a, a rational, cool, sober individual. Um, that's certainly what I try to do with my analysis. And in this case, my fears are less that we're going to have a tyranny, tyranny spring up overnight, but more you have this slow despotic drift. And I think that is a very real threat. When you look at the amount of capacity and powers that states have in comparison to many of the examples I've stated, they far exceed anything that the Roman Republic or the Medici or even Napoleon had access to. The amount of control and what James C. Scott would say, legibility over the citizens that a modern state has is incredible. You know, the fact that we, from birth now, 
often have to give you know, biometric passes. We have to uh, have an, a huge amount of our data constantly, not just given, but then updated as well. We, in many states, have you know, facial recognition. In the UK, we have the highest amount of CCTV cameras, I think, in at the very least Europe. These are powers which vastly exceed anything the previous states have had. And there's often this tug of war between the power of citizenry and the power of the state. And this is based upon work by Darren A. Smirglou and James Robinson in their book, The Narrow Corridor, basically point out that you know, when one exceeds the other, it can often go awry. And I think right now there's really no threat of citizen power kind of getting out of control, but there's certainly very real threats of state power doing exactly that. What would even be an example of citizen power getting out of control? Well, for them, they, and this is where I actually disagree with their analysis, is they think that in hunter-gatherer societies where you tend to have these very, very strong, what are called reverse dominance, or sorry, reverse hierarchies, or yeah, reverse dominance strategies where essentially anyone who tries to establish any kind of dominance over the group is usually put in the place by things like ridicule and in the very worst cases, violence. And they think that this tends to kind of restrict the potential for economic growth. I don't think there's that many examples beyond that where you have like too much citizen power. And I think that most of the examples people think of when they try to grasp towards this notion of anarchy are usually pretty poor ones. You know, even when you look at, say, for example, state failures and collapses, it's usually not that the citizens simply turn against each other and that's the problem. It's usually actually all about the birth of a new state. You know, if you look at a place like Somalia, anything wrong that's really happening there is due to new warlords competing and of course the successful one will become the new state um, it's not really down to citizens having too much power these when i see that really what your title is is you know research associate for the center of study of existential risk right um so it, it seems from what you've outlined to us that there is an imbalance of state power versus citizen power you say, and and even in response to my question, like you know, is it really a fair comparison to these sort of like sort of monsters or giants at least of history that you've sort of outlined? Uh, you know, is 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 what we're experiencing with these emergency laws comparable? It feels to me that we're experiencing something of a erosion of what were once presumed the boundaries between left and right, and there. There's an, a, a new authoritarianism that's sort of being experienced both through culture and through legislation and regulation, a new form of Puritanism. And I wonder what you feel about that. From Like, in addition to these regulatory measures, do you feel that what's happening culturally is um, sort of restrictive and an indication of some sort of existential shift? Absolutely. I think cultural checks and balances are just as important as legal ones, particularly when it comes to emergency powers. Many of the examples I've cited, such as the Roman Republic and the Bahama Republic, they weren't just simply about the overuse and abuse of emergency powers. They were also about the erosion of public trust. The public, over time, basically came to expect less and less of their governments and were kind of more willing and complacent to accept their misuse of emergency powers. 
there's a great article on this by Marcus Deville, I think his name is, um, called Just Trust Us, A Short History of Emergency Powers. And he basically puts forward the key issues, this notion of public trust, and that over time, as the public trust becomes eroded, essentially, it kind of breaks down this cultural barrier, which would usually keep leaders constrained. And you see this really strong in the Roman Republic, for instance, where the historian Libby talks about Cincinnatus, which was this kind of exemplary dictator. And Cincinnatus was a retired general who was working on a farm on the outskirts of Rome. He was called in to prevent the invasion of the Salines, I think. And he accomplished that, I believe, within 16 days, then immediately put down his arms, put down his role as dictator, took no wealth from it, and returned back to his humble life on the farm. And that may have been a parable, but it was supposed to show what were the virtues of being a good public servant, in this case, being a good dictator. And unfortunately, that set of virtues, that expectations, they became slowly, deter they slowly deteriorated over time. And I think that's one of the problems we potentially have in the modern world, is that people have become increasingly despondent and complacent when it comes to holding the powerful in check. You know, look at the Pandora Papers following the Hot Heels of the, or the Panama Papers. And the response to the public now is often just, well, we know the tax evasion is occurring, but we can't really do anything about it. And I think we often have exactly the same reaction when it comes to you know, surveillance, for instance. Yes, we know that the NSA is active in an unconstitutional manner. We know that many intelligence communities have become essentially rogue agencies and are overstepping what was traditionally considered their kind of socially acceptable role. But there's not much we can do. We only get to vote once every four years. And I think that attitude and that sense of powerlessness is potentially just as dangerous as the actual kind of legal use of emergency powers. That sense of powerlessness is in itself a response to uh, cultural conditions. And I, I, I would contest a kind of, in this case, a kind of 50 year war of attrition against sort of civil rights and hope, you know, even sort of more general uh, phenomena from the palette of human emotions. It sort of seems it, like just the when you think, you know, say there's a moment like Occupy in 2008 and like the, the way that that sort of dissipates into something accusatory and sort of despondent and, uh, you know, internally bureaucratic and complex and hypocritical. And there are enough accounts from within within that now people I've spoken to that just said that it was, got very messy very quickly in there. Um you know, and and again, like the, like you say with the Pandora paper, like I think, like most people now, I feel if you speak to them, they go, "Yeah, the government's corrupt. The media, you can't trust the media. Uh, big business is what dominates the, the way that power operates. It's democracy is a joke, an illusion. There's no point voting." Of course, there are sort of vocal people within a limited range that are sort of a, uh, um, are very uh, passionate about sort of left versus right type politics, particularly with hot button issues like, I don't know, immigration, abortion, gun control, uh, sort of civil rights around identity, like from across the sort of the, the, what I would contest is a pretty limited spectrum of issues. What I feel like we've experienced, and given the title of your job or area of research, at least, like you know, it feels like what we're experiencing is an existential crisis that, that, that for me, feels like a detachment from our MO and from our raisin 
vetra like that we don't know what we are who we are or what we're supposed to be doing anymore that we're like sort of bleached blinkered broken atomized people that don't like that people like you know like mark fisher of whom i'm a great fan like wrote you know he perhaps didn't coin the phrase it's easier to envisage the end of you know the world than the end of capitalism but he certainly is a sort of a theme that he wrote around a lot and you know when like sometimes there's the, the when you say you know people aren't even doing anything about it you sort of cite the kind of lethargy but which mark fisher would have said it's not lethargy it's a kind of people have understood oh you, you can't do anything there's nothing you can actually do so um what do we do you as a younger person than me and me as a kind of a very slightly older still handsome vocal uh, supporter of uh, like uh, agitation opposition activism and and a, sort of, and a kind of optimism what do what do we do what ideas do you want to do you want to promote and um, in terms of activism protest confrontation and constructing arguments to oppose the kind of ongoing tyranny just one example or two examples being you know the surveillance state and the emergency laws that we've spoken about already what should we do and, and what do you think are good fronts to fight this on? Issues that will galvanize people and bring people together. So first and foremost, I think we should know that you are deeply handsome and your facial hair is certainly superior to my own. My heart jumped when you said that. <laughs> Secondly, if we are going to turn the tide on these very strong, robust trends. And that's not just simply the use of emergency powers and the kind of expansion of state capacity, but also deeper trends like inequality. One of my colleagues, Walter Scheidel at Stanford University had this excellent book called The Great Leveler, where he tries to do an empirical exploration of how wealth inequality has trended over time. And his key and very compelling finding is that wealth inequality increases inexorably over time until you have a great leveler, which is a state collapse, mass mobilization, warfare, a bloody revolution, or a pandemic. And mm. there's only two cases where that doesn't seem to be the case, where you actually had a reversal of inequality, at the very least a stagnation of it, and it didn't require these kind of, you know, quite violent ruptures. And those were both Athenian democracy and also, I think, Sweden during the interbellum period. I'll have to check that. Um, when you had unions start to get represented within the parliament. In short, I think these are very deep and difficult trends, and so they're not going to be fixed just by, you know, signing a petition online, nor by, you know, changing who you vote for occasionally every four years. They do, I think, require very direct confrontational power. And I think this is why, for instance, in the UK, you've seen this really strong response since having things like Extinction Rebellion to actually try to curtail the ability to protest. You know, the Crime, Sentencing and Policing Bill is in many ways a very revealing of what the state fears. So I do think that protest and confrontation is probably the most necessary ingredient for trying to actually stop these trends. And one of the things I argue for in the article is that we need to try to pursue emergency emancipation. So when it comes to emergencies and when it comes to crises, rather than trying to give the government kind of more leeway and practicing this kind of politics of, well, you can't criticize the government during an emergency because you can't politicize the emergency. We should do exactly that. We should actually demand more government oversight when these crises occur. And we should demand more involvement on behalf of citizens. And I think ultimately the key goal here should be to try to reform our democracy towards what's frequently referred, as, referred to as deliberative democracy. So rather than having 
a representative who's picked every four years, you have a sortition or lottery across the entire citizenry. You have them picked. They can have either an assembly or a jury in which they're briefed by experts and they make the policy decisions. And that both helps to control any corruption because you know if you're basically only in office for a very short period of time and you're anonymized, there's really no one to lobby per se. And we also know that when you get citizens together and you give them good evidence and you give them the chance to deliberate, they actually come to remarkably good decisions. Um, their political judgment is actually very, very good. The problem is whenever we do this, we frequently just discard what they say because they tend to actually say things and recommend things which are going to be effective in terms of addressing problems, but are not going to be politically palatable. And it's exactly what happened with the climate change assembly in France, where Macron, in response to the Yellow Vest revolu um, revolutionaries, essentially said, okay, we're going to have this big democratic assembly. I'm going to allow for deliberate democracy to flourish. We're going to have this experiment. And I'm going to take on any recommendations they give. And so I had this over year long assembly. They gave, I think, over like uh, recommendations. You know, these were very broad ranging and in the eyes of most experts, very effective and very kind of well-crafted. And Macron, I think, accepts like just a handful of them. And that's quite clearly because he knows they're going to be effective. And unfortunately, usually when it comes to addressing big global catastrophes, effective means challenging power. So in short, I think we really need two things. We need to have much more direct protests and confrontation and struggle. But on top of that, we also need to know the leverage points. And in this case, it's not trying to address things by an issue by issue basis. It's really trying to get towards changing how democracy is conducted. And I think the two big things which can actually unify people rather than divide them are A, deliberate democracy, actually saying, look, as citizens, you should have a direct say in how policies are crafted. You shouldn't just simply hand over the keys to a representative every four years who you have you know, very limited options for in the first place. And B, wealth inequality. You know, pretty much everyone across the spectrum agrees that tax evasion is abhorrent and that tax havens should be shut down. Most people, when you actually, even on, on the far right, when you actually ask them what would be the kind of like ideal uh, distribution of welfare income, they tend to suggest something that's radically more egalitarian than what's currently in place in places like the US or across the world. So I really do think those two key leverage points, wealth inequality and digital democracy, those are things which can really change things. They're actually about leveling power, leveling economic and political power. And the things that can unify rather than divide people. I spoke to Anwar Shaikh the other day, the uh, economist, and you know he's speaking of ca like about capitalism. He said that to critique capitalism correctly, you have to understand primarily that it is doing what it is supposed to do. Like that when you sort of problematizing, oh no, here's the problem. No, that's what it's supposed to, it's doing what it's supposed to do. And many of the things that I, I think when trying to understand systemic corruption, there's many of the things you've listed, wealth inequality, you know, and like that. I was talking yesterday about um, the development of, I think, that new COVID drug. I can't even be bothered to try and say it's something like Milavirin. It's like a new sort of COVID pill that's sort of coming out. Merck have made it. And it was, of course, developed by the government, so funded by taxpayers. But when it comes to the point of selling it and licensing it, it comes, you know, it's, it's um, sold through private you know, pharmaceutical companies. And it's like that, that means that they removed the risk of the development while taking the profit 
of its um, of its distribution and sale. And like you know, when you understand that's what it's supposed to do, that you know that's well, there's no problem there. I spoke to Yanis Varoufakis, you know, a few times now, but I, one of the things that sort of remained with me was when he said. Look, he met someone like when he was that the brief moment that he was in government with Syriza, that like that he realised when dealing with like the sort of chancellor within the EU that that person and I'm, I'm reminded of this because of what you just said about Macron, like that that person only had the power to do what their role afforded them to do. So it doesn't really matter who that person is in that role. That system is like the system isn't malfunctioning. The system is doing what the system is supposed to do. It's supposed to eliminate threats to its own survival and uh, ongoing success. It's, it has to eliminate those threats. So in a sense, any solutions have to be kind of outside of these systems adjacent to it and I recognize what you're saying I think you're saying deliberative democracy are you like as in deliberation yeah I, I like I mean I I you know and, and uh, Yanis also spoke about spoke about that spoke about assemblies because like you you know I was thinking as well when you said that I, was, I thought about you know where do juries function well they're like in the obviously in the judiciary and in law and what happens with that well you end up having really highly paid lawyers and barristers who are brilliant at maneuvering and manipulating outcomes and telling stories and you know I sort of sort of sped through my mind fast forwarded how you know how if if we were to deliver these kind of civil assemblies where people had the ability to manage their own community and resources as has happened to sort of in places like brazil i know in some regions they've experimented with stuff like that that a class of professionals would immediately appear to sort of lobby and uh, like communicate with them and i like we said they would have to be anonymized but what what even from speaking to you for like 20 minutes i sort of feel like oh well, you know as I often feel when I speak to people that are truly interested in innovation and change, there are solutions available. It's just that whenever those solutions, like any solution that is at odds with the interests of the powerful will be immediately discounted, discredited. The person that suggested it will be called a paedophile. You know, like it's vroom, vroom, <laughs> annihilate, annihilate. You know, like a, it's really hard to sort of, you know, it's, it, the intransigence is breathtaking, huh? Absolutely. And this is also a, a typical response you have to whistleblowers as well, right? If a, a whistleblower comes out and reports on any wrongdoing, corruption or injustices that a, a large, uh, powerful organization is doing, they'll immediately kind of try to target the whistleblower rather than the actual content. Um, I mean, there's a lot of rich things to discuss here, but what I want to hone in on is this idea that the system is working as it's intended. And I think that isn't just appropriate for capitalism, but it's also appropriate in many ways for the use of emergency powers and the way that they tend to operate in terms of reinforcing a hierarchy and trying to often expand the scope of governmental powers and capacities, usually in very particular directions. So one thing I discussed in the article is that when it comes to crises and our responses to them, we disproportionately favor surveillance measures. So whether it's terrorism or microbes, we often first will want to go towards anything that involves surveillance. Even when we actually don't have good evidence that mass surveillance is going to help with either one of these. You know, when it comes to the NSA's programs, when they were actually pushed in court to justify why they had, you know, basically overstepped the line towards mass surveillance of metadata, 
they, I think, came up with initially, you know, around about 50 cases as to why they felt um, this was helpful in catching a terrorist. When they got pushed further, they could only cite one. And that, I believe, was a case where basically they caught a Somali uh, taxi driver who was, like, transferring something infinitesimally small, like $5,000 to a terrorist group. Um, and even in that case, it's unclear as to whether the actual large mass surveillance program of the NSA was really uh, decisive in ensuring that person was captured. So in short, we don't have good evidence that these things work, but the reason we go towards surveillance is because that's what states want to do. You know, this is very typical and beautiful book by James C. Scott, a political scientist and anthropologist at Yale. He talks about seeing like a state that states want to make both their territories and their citizens legible, which is why we've seen things like the imposition of surnames, for instance. So you can basically trace someone's lineage and ensure they're appropriately taxed. <laughs> also saw, you know, the uh, introduction of common measurements. So you could make sure that taxation was once again more efficient. In China, you had the introduction of certain maps, which would measure the fertility of different soils to ensure your taxation system was most effective as possible. And of course, in the modern world, we have big data. Um, but it's all basically about making sure that you understand your citizens as acutely as possible so you can, in its essence, control them. Yeah. One of Scott's key arguments is, you know, this is not a bug, it's a feature. This is exactly how states want to see the world. And I think that's not just true for states. I do think this is true for most hierarchies. They have a particular way they want to see the world. And, you know, platforms, whether it's Google or Facebook, the way they try to view the world is almost identical to a state. And emergency powers are usually about extending the apparatus by which the state can see, but also the problem by which you can operate and act. Um, and I think similarly, emergency powers in general, you know, the, the purpose of them is in part conservative. They're supposed to protect the existing constitution and kind of authority structures, but, you know, they're also supposed to extend powers as well. And they do both of those things quite effectively. Um, but again, like I think the despotic, despotic drift in many ways there's ways of framing this in which it's, again, a feature, not a bug. Yes, it is supposed to protect the Constitution. One could argue that despotic drift is a kind of distortion of that. The point of this, uh, a, a system of governance, or perhaps actually, you know, perhaps any system, is control and management. And this term you use, despotic drift, I suppose, suggests that a system, once uh, control has been you know, established, if control can ever really be established, the tendency is an inclination is to increase the control, to increase efficacy. Is it therefore, do you think, Luke, necessary, if you are to countenance this tendency, to propose and even maybe impose um, decentralization because any centralized systems ultimately going to suffer from that tendency and thus accumulate eventually more power and the only way to moderate that meaningfully is to ensure there are numerous centers that there is de like, that you can't have as we have oh, uh, currently a kind of corporate state Inter interlocking systems that, that that continually support, sustain, and evolve one another. That that essentially now the the problem is too much centralization. How whatever aesthetic inflection it bears, state corporatism, the kind of state capitalism of uh, China or whatever it is we have now in the kind of countries that we're broadly discussing. 
Yeah, I think decentralization is key. And alongside that is what I like to call leveling. So leveling of certain power structures and systems. So in the book, The Source of Social Power by Michael Mann, which is kind of this like classic of sociology, he talks about four sources of power, ideological, economic, military, and political. And I think what you were talking about before, Russell, this idea that even if you have deliberative democracy, there'll be automatic responses that will attempt to co-opt it. I think that's probably true. And I think the key thing there is that if you have any massive centralization in one of these particular forms of power, it'll eventually spill over into the others. So even if we do kind of level power by having sortition and deliberative democracy, and we kind of level political power, if you still have billionaires and you still have massive wealth inequalities, they'll find ways of distorting the political process, even if it's deliberative. And to me, this is the kind of the great challenge of our time in a way, is it's not just simply about trying to fix politics, it's also about trying to fix each of these sources of social power to try to level them. And that is much easier said um, rather than done. Yeah, yeah, it is. I suppose the first thing you have to do is isolate what the sources of this power is. You know, there are economic and financial sources. There are sort of uh, institutionalized power sources, both in the private sector and in government. And the relationships between them, of course, is what keeps the, the you know, the, the keeps the, the machine kind of rolling. I can see sort of how many of the ideas that we've already touched upon, uh, in addition to sort of breaking down some of these relationships would be powerful, but perhaps let's before we try to dismantle global capitalism let's uh, <laughs> return um for, to, for a moment to these emergency powers and the and the uh, inception of our conversation because loads of people by the way like sort of said where did what is this article that you're using you know when like we did a video around your article and like lots of people were very interested in the source material which is uh, you're the source material and by god what a source it is so uh, like uh, like so what i um recommend <laughs> people that work for me are sort of laughing at my flirting uh, i'm <laughs> married in that by the way so it's deadly i'm sure you don't <laughs> just, just to let you know um so but like um my point is that um do you right all over the world no matter broadly speaking no matter where you are there have been sort of um, incredible powers have been evoked i get i, I recognize this is sort of not your point i've read elsewhere and i'll you know link to it in the description that like that, that there is significant evidence to suggest that the the degree of um uh sort of severity of the lockdown is very difficult to measure the efficacy for example you can't say outright that the more severe the lockdown the more it slowed the spread of uh, coronavirus, say, you know, and I know that's not really what you're here to discuss. You're talking about the sort of, um, you know, when we're talking about regulation. Um, there are examples like Australia and New, Ze New Zealand, but like, you know, obviously both are islands in, in, in different ways and like being able to sort of turn that into a kind of controlled space. Um, is, is, a, is a kind of anomaly but there are sort of examples like Taiwan and Sweden and other countries where you know like because of course the first thing you'll say about emergency powers and lockdowns and stuff is it's necessary it's effective now there are there are some there are some considerable questions around that efficacy not that I'm offering just that the data is available and you can check it people can check it for themselves um, so firstly are we see is the introduction of these powers like as you say i think you describe it and, and in this conversation i've described it as a kind of a stomp reflex will these powers ever be withdrawn should people be organizing to demand that these powers are 
withdrawn because of course I'm, and perhaps you can touch on sort of like counter terror measures post 9-11 and the way and the way that the introduction of those kind of powers has subsequently been handled yeah so it's first of all worth nuancing things that when we face a crisis often we do need to have you know swift and often drastic measures in order to ensure the worst outcomes are averted but you don't need to have you know swift and reaction for emergency powers you know, if you look at Lockdowns, for instance, there's at least one study suggesting in the UK, you know, 50%, so roughly half of the reductions in the transmission rate you had before the imposition of lockdown because people were kind of already acting. Um, and this is much more an argument for procedural justice, that the way we respond to emergencies is really critical upon how the process in which we make decisions. Um, it's in a way less about the precise powers and much more ensuring accountability and oversight of those powers. In terms of the, the stomp reflex, I think the key thing here is that there's a real mismatch between what we know works during emergency and the worldview which stomp re the stomp reflex is based upon. We know that elites often abuse emergency powers, and this can range from things like sending in the military when it's clearly not going to work. So there's both very clear kind of anecdotal case studies like the great earthquake in San Francisco with military sent in and according to numerous different accounts end up shooting people who they suspected may have been writing and certainly were not. So essentially the elite reaction and the stomp reflex end up worsening things. There's also much larger empirical evidence here. So there's one study I cite in the article which had a look at a range of different natural disasters and the number of emergency powers that had been activated by the executive during them. And you find that even when you control for the size of the disaster, the more emergency powers that are activated, the higher the body count. So there's really not a strong case here that emergency powers actually help to diffuse or to address crisis. Instead, they actually seem to potentially worsen in many ways. And we have really good evidence to the contrary that these decentralized reactions from citizens can actually be incredibly effective and very pro-social, very uh, swift acts of spontaneous cooperation. And we should really be trying to more kind of nurture and cultivate those rather than just from just trying to stamp them out. Um, so yeah, this is, I think, an argument in two, two ways. One is, you know, the procedural justice aspect that we need to make sure we have greater oversight and accountability of our governments. And secondly, that we need to really think about this rationally and think, how can we actually make use of the good impulses of citizens during crisis rather than simply trying to potentially worsen crisis substantially. Um, I think, not to go on too long a rant here, but um, also the, the point you raised here about how sticky emergency powers be can become is a critical one. We can't at this stage say that any particular emergency power is certain to stick around. But I think we can say of a good degree of confidence that a number of measures and powers introduced to combat the coronavirus will most likely stick around beyond their use. And that's based upon just sheer precedent here. We have a whole bunch of emergency powers that were supposed to be temporary and extenders get extended and extended. So if you look at something like the Patriot Act, for instance, in the US, um, and just as a quick note and as, a, as, a, as an aside, you'll notice that these acts almost always have the most innocuous names possible, like the Patriot Act, for instance, or the Freedom Act. You know, could how, how can you argue patriotism or freedom, for instance? 
Um, Only if you're a communist, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. Um, and on top of that, you know, when we breach for certain uh, measures, particularly when it comes to surveillance, we almost always try to frame it as trying to combat very particular inarguably bad actors. So a friend of mine back at Cambridge University, Stephanie Feltzberger, she talks about how when we, whenever we try to justify new surveillance measures, which are often embedded into emergency powers, we almost always talk about this unholy trinity of terrorists, organized crime, and pedophiles. Um, you know, and that's all well and good, but in reality, often the way that surveillance works, it ends up having more of an impact upon everyday citizens than it necessarily has upon actually pre preventing these particular bad actors. Um, but in short, we do know that emergency powers often stick around and that even when they're supposed to be temporary, when they have these sunset clauses, which say, you know, this emergency power will be renegotiated and reviewed five years on, they quite frequently just get passed on continuously. And there's good reason to suspect that many of the measures we have in place now for Corona will undergo exactly the same process, particularly given that unfortunately when it comes to Corona, the disease may have already become endemic which gives a very good pretext that these things should be passed on. And again, this is not an argument that we shouldn't have some fairly drastic measures to combat the coronavirus. It's more of an argument that we need to have much stronger accountability and oversight for these things. When you look at the countries that had by far the worst body counts and responses to corona, they weren't marked by a less trustworthy or more pegged public. You know, places like the US and the UK, they were marked by incompetence at the highest levels and corruption at the highest levels. And those are things that wouldn't have been fixed by emergency powers, but they would have been fixed by a far greater degree of democratic transparency. Yes. Yes, I like that. I like that they were marked by incompetence at the highest levels. There's a lot of things I want to say. Here are those things. If your response is like, you know, emergency powers, you know, when you break that down a little bit, it's going to be restriction of movement enforced by the law. And as we've discussed many times on this show, and obviously you'll be well aware of because of your field of expertise, that really, and it's sort of a Foucaultian idea and you're an academic, so you'll be backwards, forwards and all around that sort of stuff. Like, um, like that, you know, all law is underwritten by violence. Even if it's like a parking ticket, you ignore it long enough, some guys are coming, you know, like, and like, um, and I, I like what you said about the, the, like the, 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 there's no investment in the good impulse, which in a sense is sort of saying like there is no freedom. The, like the fact that the police and military, who are two organisations that could you know potentially be and and often are of great service to the public and there's no question that there are very positive aspects to the people that are members of both of those institutions i.e valor bravery selflessness willingness to cooperate for a higher cause all of those things but the fact is is that both of them are kind of ultimately let's face it directed towards violence like that the like so it's uh, it's not surprising that violence is an eventual outcome that if you deploy the uh, military in a hurricane and things are unusual because it's an unusual situation they're not going to say why don't we try balloon animals they're going to say well why don't we try rubber bullets and hoses you know and like um and uh, uh, the other thing is, is that we're providing a kind of, you know, coronavirus aside, it's like an imprint is being provided now for this is this thing that happens called lockdowns. This is this thing that happens called you've got a passport now for movement. This is a thing that happens now called we can impose certain measures, whether medical or social, you know, like it, it's, it creates a kind of, you know, it creates the pathways, both neurological, social, that for, for us to move along. When I think of like, 
even a person like myself where where I flatter myself that I have a strong anti-establishment instinct i like sometimes as a kind of practice i i try to disobey five ten rules a day just to keep sharp just to keep match fit <laughs> so, well do do you necessarily have to stop there do you necessarily have to is it i can recognize that there would be circumstances where it would be beneficial to stop there but i am not giving up my agency to this external force that's only supposed to be in my service furthermore that the, the the entire like this entire philosophy is you've uh, um, uh, sort of uh, inferred earlier is undergirded by a kind of a pessimistic view of what human beings are. The whole uh, governing and governed relationship is underwritten by the idea that if you do not have a governing force, you uh, or you know the sort of plural you will go crazy and you'll all be sort of uh, masturbating on street corners and cutting each other's throats by 3 p.m. without an external force. And that's sort of like an oddly sort of, I don't know what it is. Is it a sort of like a Presbyterian sort of Protestant kind of self-flagellating, self-loving? You know, how do we get to the hearts and minds? How do we get to the hearts and minds of people to restore in people a faith that you are all right? The people that you're like, you know, what do you think these institutions are really? They're, they're people. They're people's interests, ultimately. You know, when you see in our country, Dominic Cummings, you know, in the way that he operated during the lockdown, or Matt Hancock, the way he operated during the lockdown, or Boris Johnson, the way like these are all, you know, and I'm not criticizing them any more than I would anybody else. Fallible, flawed human beings with mistakes and errors in them, and family. The idea that we need to create a class of people, a strata of people, a set of institutions to have undue dominion, further fortified by by these emergency powers, is a kind of um, I don't know, like a Stockholm syndrome, a kind of self-loathing that we need to be cracked out of yes yeah, so first of all i fully endorse your occasional rule breaking there's a a good uh phrase from james c scott of anarchist calisthenics that <laughs> you want to flex your muscles of disobedience occasionally you want to you know practice acts of small defiance particularly when it comes to rules which either don't make sense or just downright stupid um, there's no reason to just obey them because of their so yeah anarchist Thank calisthenics I, I fully agree with when it comes to this question of how do I phrase this? Yes, when it comes when it comes to the question of human nature, I guess, which I think is a really vital key crux. I think that the way the world tends to operate, particularly when it comes to the model of emergency powers, is one of a Hobbesian nature. So Thomas Hobbes was this very famous political theorist who essentially justified the state, or as he called it, the Leviathan, the sovereign, as being necessary. It was a necessary social contract because otherwise, in a state of anarchy, in a state without rulers, all lives would be nasty, short, and brutish, as he classically quoted it. And there's just not really any, any, any evidence of that. You know, Hobbes was writing during a civil war in which things did look very nasty, short and brutish, but that was actually due to different people trying to enforce and create a state rather than due to a kind of anarchy per se. Um, and what we actually see from a very large body of both archaeological and anthropological evidence is that in non-state societies, there's not really a lot of evidence that they're incredibly violent or anything like that. Um, a lot of the examples that are frequently pulled up in anthropology are of small hunter-gatherer groups that have already come into contact with aggressive agrarian states and, and hence probably had to become more warlike and militaristic. But when you actually look at 
say, for example, the Paleolithic, the Ice Age, there's very little evidence of kind of mass warfare violence. And indeed, there's actually some good evidence that you don't see, for example, Mesopotamia, the area where we have the rise of the first kind of pristine states. You don't see walls or mass warfare until you have the first state, the Zero Dynasty in Egypt. And once that props up, all of a sudden you start to see this response of kind of militarization. But in short, I think that emergency powers is based upon a Hobbesian view of, of our human nature, that if humans are left to their own devices and they don't have a coercive hierarchy to look over them, if they don't have a Leviathan to keep control of them, then they're just simply going to kill each other. And you know, this is also a very Stephen Pinker type worldview as well. And it's just not really good evidence for that. And instead, I think there's actually very good evidence that humans are actually fundamentally pretty decent. You know, when we actually do really horrible things to each other, it tends to be through very well-organized, systematic and almost industrialized organizations. You know, When you look at the very worst atrocities, whether it's Unit 731, the bioweapons program of Japan or Nazi Germany, they're very hierarchical, well-organized organizations. It wasn't hierarchy per se. And I do think this is really vital that people often don't think about then how their notion of human nature really impacts what they think, how they think the world should operate and how it does operate. And, you know, I'm in this field of existential risk and a lot of people I work with, I think, do have this very pessimistic view of human nature. And we've had some very famous articles in the field of people saying, look, to prevent the, the apocalypse, given new dangerous technologies are emerging, we need to have global surveillance and uh, preventative policing. And I just think that totally mischaracterized the problem. I think they're really just working from this very basic instinct of humans are bad. And if they have access to weaponry, things will go horribly, horribly wrong. I think there's much more evidence for the contrary, that humans are fundamentally good. And we only tend to go bad when we're corrupted by power. And this is, I think, a worldview which has a lot more evidence. If you look at a book, for example, by Rutger Bregman called Humankind, he puts forward pretty good um, different strands of evidence for exactly this. And when you, again, look at things like the corona crisis or how crises in general unfold, it seems to support this hypothesis that, you know, elites and people who have excessive amounts of power are more likely to, in short, fuck up <laughs> um, and engage in acts of corruption, basically incompetence, while at an aggregate level, people tend to respond pretty well. You remember at the beginning, of course you do, of the crisis, the kind of uh, conjuring of the sort of secular matriarch worship around the NHS, our NHS, support the NHS, and like people trying to evoke the sort of Brit recent British history, this is our Second World War. You know, like that the, the, the sort of through propagandist means happy to el elicit and uh, conjure this sort of spirit of public well-being before sort of uh, before that elides into control, force, condemnation, measures of uh, you know sort of measures of uh, surveillance and management. And yeah, I really, I, I one of the things that m makes me feel frustrated at the moment is, and I, I wonder, I don't know if this sits within your field or if it's something you're happy to comment on, is that the that this sort of peculiar um, melting of our previously understood political boundaries, even with the limited field of dominant mainstream politics, that i.e., broadly speaking, you could argue that the left appear to have become authoritarian and puritanical and, and that the 
right seems to be like and like you know i still you know it's pretty obvious to you, that you i would imagine to anyone what kind of background i come from politically given the kind of age i am and the kind of stuff that i say but like what i'm noticing now is that that just because of like freedom of speech which which is usually the left sort of um equates with oh they want freedom of speech to say racist stuff uh like but like uh i think that it's more complicated than that and i also feel like that you know, I, I I talk a lot with Adam Curtis. Do you watch his stuff ever, Luke? You know, Adam Cur- Curtis, the filmmaker. Yeah, me too. I love him. And like, you know, for what, like, he and I have been talking for like a long time now about like how, you know, and it's, it's just probably an argument I would presume that you're well familiar with that sort of from like um, once the left abandoned the working class and this sort of intelligentsia say that would be traditionally leftist sort of said well we don't want to deal with them we don't like them <laughs> they're, they're smelly <laughs> like like uh well from that point onward the the kind of the kind of politics now that is sort of dominant i.e sort of skewed towards what i would say are very important issues around people's rights to identify how they want civil rights movements all important historic and contemporary struggles has in spite of their merits this has replaced the politics of addressing inequality economic inequality and power imbalance um there's been sort of a kind of vilification and abandonment of ordinary working people there is no left-wing politics now there is no challenge. There is no vision. Like, you know, in a tech, in this sort of like late capitalist technocracies, there is no vision. Like, you know, even sort of charismatic politicians such as Blair or Clinton were offering little more than Obama. Like the, 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 the management, we will manage what's going on. It's a, a managerial, technocratic, sort of late bureaucratic kind of uh vision rather than society could be amazing we could do all of this you could be free you know like you know no one's even saying like even the the myth of technological and medicinal progressivism has just become what now oh we can invent these vaccines quick uh you know it's not like no one's going to the moon no one's doing anything sort of sexy you know i wonder what you think about all that yeah, so I'm taking my kind of scholarly hat off and putting my political pundit and personal hat on and also noting that I definitely have, you know, vested interests here insofar as I, I come from a working class background. The I think there's two key problems I see right now with the struggle between left and right. And one is that left and right have become blurred because both of them just simply support different forms of authoritarianism. And this might seem rather extreme, but the original split and divide between left and right was after the French Revolution. We essentially had those on the right of the parliament supporting preserving some degree of monarchy in the kind of traditional social systems and hierarchies, and those on the left wanting to abolish them. In so many ways, it was really about hierarchy and anti-hierarchy. And I think to me, what you see now is that people on the right are quite happy to speak against the hierarchy of the state but not against the hierarchy of dictatorial companies and private organizations. And on the left, people are quite happy to embrace the hierarchy and sometimes very authoritarian nature of the state, but not that of private firms and companies. And to me, that's just somewhat illogical and incoherent, really. You know, the problem is not whether you're a state or a firm per se, if not whether you're public or private, it's really about your structure. You know, if you're hierarchical and dictatorial, 
then that's the problem. You know, the hierarchy and the concentration of power is the problem. And I think in many ways, that's just simply what anarchists do much better than liberals, is they just simply take the observation about freedom to its logical conclusions. Um, and it's very odd that you know, most of us live in a society where we talk about ourselves being a liberal democracy, but when we go to work and when we, in particular, if we're in a, in a private workplace, you know, we basically are in mini dictatorships most of our lives. And we seem to be okay with that. So I think the distinctions between left and right are you know, increasingly becoming blurred because they're just happy to accept different forms of authority and hierarchy. And if you're sticking by the original, most coherent definition of left and right, then in many ways, they're both just drifting towards the right. And secondly, I do certainly agree that I think there has been an unfortunate downplaying of issues of wealth inequality in class that, as you mentioned, the identity issues in the modern world are vitally important. It's well overdue and, and critical that we're actually addressing these now. But if you keep existing power and wealth inequalities the way they are and just simply kind of have better representation, I sadly don't think that's going to address the problem here. You know, if the US military has greater racial diversity in its chain of command, but is still bombing people across the world in order to justify its its reign, then that hasn't really fixed the problem. And I do think there's a reason why many states have been much more willing to act on issues of representation and diversity than they have been willing to act on wealth inequality. And that's because the latter fundamentally threatens those in positions of power, while the former doesn't do quite so as much. Um, and this, of course, is not to say that you were in an overall situation. You know, ideally, we do both. But right now, unfortunately, in terms of the discourse, we've really drowned out talking about wealth inequality. And I do agree with David Graeber's, the late David, David Graeber's analysis here that in many ways, the left has become about kind of the managerial class. That it's really about more appealing to the middle class who want to manage things and kind of preserve the status quo to a certain extent. And it's become increasingly less about representing either the working class, what he'd call the caring class, you know, people like teachers and nurses, firefighters, et cetera, you really are more about caring for others rather than about managing others. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, yeah. I thank you. Obviously, obviously I agree with you. Luke, there's like, there's so much to talk about. I feel like um, that you and I could uh, collaborate on a few quite specific things like uh, around content creation. I wondered if you'd be interested in that. Yeah, absolutely. I've got a, a whole bunch of ongoing work which may interest you, including a piece coming out probably next Monday called Agents of Doom, which is uh, kind of focusing upon my usual stuff, more about kind of global catastrophe and human extinction, but really looking at who are the key political actors who are creating it? Um, but yeah, I'd be very interested in doing some more content creation. Can, um, that's brilliant. Well, like we, let's wrap up this conversation. Thank you, Luke, for coming on the show. My absolute pleasure, Russell. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Luke. Now, let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with a hashtag Under the Skin. I'm doing that too. Remember, you can come see me in Reading. I'll probably do some more dates next year, but I want you to come to Reading. Uh, above the noise, get yourself meditating. Sign up to my mailing list. And if you enjoyed, why Bradley Garrett? Because I thought you were talking about emergency powers and control. And so you did put Garrett some thought into it. It was like, oh, getting out of that. <laughs> <laughs>
I liked oh, Bradley good. Garrett. When I, I get, love Bradley Garrett. When I have my new HQ, Jen, which we can't talk about in detail, but when there's a new HQ, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do events, right? And there's going to be people like Bradley Garrett's going to come and people like Nick Hayes is going to come and all my other pals. That's your special my, walking group. My walking chums. <laughs> These are different from my <laughs> smash me up PJJ bruds. Uh, anyway, I'm going to have talks, right? And then people can come and see Under the Skin live. They'll love that, won't they? I think so. We've done. They liked it when we did it in Ireland. Oh yeah, who was that with them brothers, wasn't it? With um, Happy Pear, Happy Pear, and Blind Boy, and, and Radnatswami. Radnatswami, yeah, I love the Flynn. The long questions happen at those events, though. Well, I do long questions. No, you know, oh, when it goes questions. to the audience. Yeah, like we should tap as attach a zapper to them, and if the question's too long, zap zap. All right, so um, that's not that's not enforceable. Or Adam Curtis, you should listen to. Yeah. Yeah, you referenced them in the podcast. Keep checking my YouTube videos. And thank you so much, you sweet, sweet child, for listening <laughs> for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary. <laughs>